the the request was kind of like, how do we hold hold all of this? And uh, my first response was, we hold it with as much patience as possible. Um, if I have any advice, I mean, aside from doing what you can to protect your visions of the future or promote your visions of the future, that is a future of harmony and ease and justice. Aside from that, my advice would be to always keep the, a perspective close at hand, of maybe in your left pocket or something. Uh, the perspective being that this is a phase that uh, many nation states have gone through before us and that um, it's a difficult time. And in some way it has to live itself. It has a, Our nation has its own karma a, as a nation that it has to live out. And so um, that's all I have to say politically. <laughs> Be as at ease and as full of joy as you can, because that is what the, the world desperately needs, is your ease and joy. It's too easy to be depressed and sorrowful about it all. The hard stuff, joy is the hard stuff. I wanted to, and I, I'm going to talk about uh, joy and mystery and awe tonight. Uh, I was also told <laughs> that the last time I was here I gave this talk, and I totally forgot, but so, <laughs> but mystery and awe never hurts, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the talk again, but I'll do it shorter and maybe we can have some discussion at the end. Uh, I want to start with a the lyrics to a song that someone sent me uh, that I like a lot, it was written by Dory Previn and sang uh, way back in the early 70s. It's called Mythical Kings and Iguanas. I have flown to star-stained heights on bent and battered wings in search of mythical kings, mythical kings, sure that everything of worth was in the sky and not the earth, and I never learned to make my way down, down, down where the iguanas play. I have ridden comet tails in search of magic rings to conjure mythical kings, mythical kings, singing scraps of angel song, high is right and low is wrong. And I never taught myself to live down, down, down where the iguanas live. Astral walks I try to take, I sit and throw eaching. Aesthetic bards and tarot cards are the cords to which I cling. But curse the mind that mounts the clouds in search of mythical kings, and only mystical things, mystical things, cry for the soul that will not face the body as an equal place. And I never learned to touch for real or feel the things iguanas feel. Down, down, down where iguanas play. Teach me, teach me. 
sweet little song. I always like to come out here because there's always there's so many lizards out here. Uh, really, they're they're just you, know, you see them with their little lizard brains, and then and you see the turkeys with their little bird brains, and then the deer with their mammal brains, and then the humans with their big neocortex and. They come inside and try to figure out how to work it, you know, how to get the whole panorama here. So this talk uh, is kind of inspired by teaching and wondering why so often when we sit up here, when I sit up here, I look out and people are meditating it looks like everyone has indigestion or something. <laughs> it, it, there's a kind of grimness. And, uh, you know, the Buddha's smiling. Why, why, don't, why don't we smile more when, we, when we're meditating? Um, Hafiz has a wonderful poem. He says, Oh, wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile. <laughs> it's, it's easy to be cynical and have a dark attitude about life and the world. Um, there's the first noble truth, of course, and uh, there's civilization, uh, religion, politics, fashion, all the stuff that we can be cynical about. Um, Lily Tomlin says, no matter how cynical you get, it's impossible to keep up. <laughs> but sometimes all it takes to turn the mind and turn the heart a bit, and I, I, the reason I, I am so interested in this is because, you know, we all teach what we need to learn. And I've had, I consider myself a cynic in recovery. Uh, to turn the mind and the heart a bit uh, towards the mystery uh, of our existence. And it can arouse a real awe and wonder and love uh, for life. It's really quite available, quite easily available. Meditation itself prepares the ground for awe by bringing us into the moment so that we are with the world as it is rather than constantly projecting our likes and dislikes and wondering what use we can make of any given experience. We can be in the world and just in the world with beginner's mind. Just look around for a moment. Just here we are. Imagine that you are seeing this for the first time as if you were an alien. And I mean, it's, it's quite, a, quite astonishing what, what is going on here and all these pieces of matter that are moving around and looking around. 
One of the things that uh, meditation, I think, does to help us explore the mystery is to bring us into the most basic aspects of our existence. As I was guiding you a bit in the, in the meditation, that meditation brings us back into our breath and into our body and the heartbeat and the senses. It makes us aware on a very basic level of this wondrous, mysterious being that we are. I mean, when we bring our attention back to ourselves, it's not just a lump. It's a sentient, conscious, self-mobile, self-aware piece of the universe. It's quite a rare experience, at least in our neighborhood of of the galaxy. Carl Jung said, if you are depressed, you're too high up in your mind. So meditation brings us back to these more basic aspects of our existence. And when we get down to that level, there is a lot of wonder. Once I interviewed Swami Muktananda, great, great yogi, and uh, I asked him about doing miracles, as so many of the Swamis do, and he said, I don't need to do miracles, I just tell people to be aware of the blood circulating through their body. It's all the miracle he needed to uh, point to. One of our greatest gifts as humans is to this ability to wonder at ourselves and the universe. And with just a a little bit of arousal of that mystery, it can fill our practice and our lives with curiosity and energy, delight. Einstein said there are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as if everything is a miracle. He also said, one cannot help be in awe when one contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity. So, in an attempt to arouse a little of your holy curiosity, I would like to lead you in a bit of a reflection, an exercise I call Be Here Wow. (laughs) And it's an exercise for your awe muscle. That's the muscle that makes your jaw drop open in wonder. And I'll begin with a little reflection on the on the basic facts of our existence. The odds against us are truly astronomical. It is extremely improbable that we are sitting here right now 
in these bodies with these brains contemplating the improbability of us being here right now in these bodies with these brains. At the moment of the Big Bang, every, everything, all the forces and particles had to be in just the right proportion, just the right sizes, in order for a universe to hang together like this and evolve into us, us beings. If the protons, if the size of the protons or the neutrons were just a little bit different, smaller or bigger, if the electromagnetic force pulling the, the atoms apart had been stronger or the nuclear force holding them together had been stronger or weaker, then atoms would have collapsed or flown apart and then no elements would have been created and uh, no elements, no carbon, no oxygen, and then where would we be? We are carbon-based life forms, and we are oxygen-breathing life forms. Wouldn't have happened. It's very elementary. Very elementary. Consider that uh, eight other planets spun out of the same cloud of gases as the Earth, and none of them have life at least not life as we know it. Maybe they had a little life, one or two of them, way back when, but it didn't go very far. Recently, scientists have discovered 30 other planets in different solar systems, but they don't believe any of them have life because either these planets are too close to their sun or their orbits are wobbly or they're too close to the center of the galaxy and getting all these gamma rays and x-rays. They call them dead zones. All these planets are in dead zones. So as far as we know, this is the only place in the universe that this is happening. This planet is just in exactly the right place, the right distance from our sun, the right place in the, in the galaxy, for life to have evolved. James Lovelock says, the climate and chemical properties of the earth now and throughout its history seem always to have been optimal for life as we know it. For this to have happened by chance is as unlikely as to survive unharmed driving blindfold through rush hour traffic. Something strange seems to be going on here. E.O. Wilson has us contemplate the rarity of life by having us walk from the center of the earth to the surface. And he says we would walk for a month or two through molten rock and then through hardened mountains of rock and then finally after a couple months of walking we would come to about the last 20 minutes of our walk we would begin to see some little amoeba and bacteria in the water table below the surface of the earth and then some worms and some bugs and then we'd burst through the surface and there would be millions of different life forms everywhere. Millions and millions of life forms and then a few minutes later and they would all disappear. 
And as far as we know, this is the only place in the universe where this is happening. And they're everywhere. Everywhere, every nook and cranny. There are some trees that, that the scientists have discovered in the Amazon that have like 20 different species of beetle living on one tree. There'll be a big beetle climbing over the whole tree and then a little smaller beetle living on one branch of the tree in, in the little crevices of the bark. And then below that, there's another colony of little beetles and mites and then bacteria way at the bottom and every nook and cranny. It's really, it's really quite phenomenal. The Buddha had a parable about the rarity of human life. I mean, there's life is everywhere, but human and this human life, this complexity, seems like it's pretty rarefied, at least from inside, being one of these complex beings. I don't know, I'm trying to get simpler, but it's kind of hard. The Buddha has this parable about a turtle who's swimming through the seven seas. And someone throws a yoke, a lifesaver, onto the seven seas. It's floating free. And the chances, the Buddha says, that that turtle will come up underneath that yoke uh, are the same chances you have of being born a human. Uh, very, very rare. That's why he calls it over and over again, this precious human life. Reflecting on the improbability and the rarity of life is not only a, uh, a cause for wonder and the arousal of mystery, but it is a powerful message of anatta, of no self. Because when we really think about this great flow of events of cosmic and then biological evolution, we realize that we are just a temporary appearance out of this flow, arising just at a moment of time and then changing, moving on. The flow moves on. It is a powerful message of anatta. We are the result of all of these elements coming together in just the right way at this time. And as the Buddha said, all compounded things will come apart. That is their nature. There's no lasting self here. But for now, these elements have come together in a pretty spectacular way. So let's investigate, uh, just for a few moments, this body and mind. And uh, awe is, is definitely called for. First of all, when you're sitting, if you just simply sit there, the whole organism does everything it needs to do without any help from you. 
it all goes on almost completely autonomously. Very little. You need to do very little work to keep this, uh, this process known as you going. If you'll just uh, come with me for a few moments, close your eyes for a few moments, bring your attention to your breath. Be aware that before you brought your attention to your breath, it was breathing. In fact, if you tried to stop breathing and held your breath, you would pass out and your breathing would continue. It's almost as if you have no choice but to breathe, like life got into you and wants you to live, insists upon it. You get about 15 million, 15 to 30 million breaths in a lifetime. Which one was this? While your eyes are closed, sense your heartbeat. Do you ever see a picture of, through a microscope or on a film or video, of a amoeba and the rhythmic little twitching? You think you might be related? Everything that lives pulses. You get about six billion heartbeats in an average lifetime. It's just how long the parts last, you know. And every few minutes, your entire blood supply is moved throughout your entire body. And if all your veins and arteries were stretched end to end, they would go around the planet. And your heart has that, that muscle there, keeps pumping your blood through that system every few minutes. Pretty phenomenal. Now bring your attention to your head for a few minutes, where you think you live. Move your upper and lower teeth together, just so you can get a sense of that great skull there. And the hardness of the bone. Your bones are made of calcium phosphate, by the way. It's literally the clay of the earth, molded into your shape. You might want to know that the first heads appeared as extra clumps of cells on early marine creatures. These clumps of cells grew around the, the creature's mouth and enabled the creatures to manipulate their mouth better and eat and find food easier. You might notice that the senses conveniently grew around 
the brain there in this skull. You notice the six holes for the ears, eyes, nose, mouth. Conveniently located around the mouth, the senses. What are our heads for? Survival. The better to eat you with, my dear. Again, be aware of the jaw, this incredible hinge. The first jaws appeared on worms. In fact, worms invented our whole phyla of vertebrate. The first to have spines. Now, most of the creatures on the planet are chewers, have, have spines, have uh, jaws. Because that allows us to eat things that are bigger than us. Bite size. So the worms, uh, we owe them a great debt, but we don't. Do we ever thank them? <laughs> we put them on hooks and use them as bait. So move your attention just down along your spine and out into your limbs and just feel this uh, skeleton here. Uh, you could maybe visualize the bones of your body, 600 bones. Every seven years your body grows the equivalent of an entire new skeleton. In fact, there is no part of you that is older than 10 years, which may explain our behavior, you know. <laughs> We're all preteens. <laughs> our memory is older, I think, but that's about it. Now bring your hand to your stomach and just Feel your stomach for a few moments. The plumbing. Right now, there's all these processes taking place beneath your conscious awareness. Sugars are being filtered, nutrients being extracted from food, waste processed. Amazing amount of activity going on down there. You're, you have to grow a new stomach lining every few days just to protect your stomach from the digestive juices. They're so strong. So at this moment inside of your stomach, there are about a half million new cells being created every minute. A constant process of creation And of course, in your stomach are millions and millions, excuse me, billions and billions of individual little creatures, bacteria, more 
living beings in your stomach than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. Necessary to your existence as you are necessary to their existence. As the microbiologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. We are all walking communities. We're like ecosystems unto ourselves. You can open your eyes. There is some speculation, you know, that the bacteria invented us as moving feedlots. <laughs> there is speculation that the whole universe was created for bacteria. In fact, they are the most successful beings that ever lived. Three and a half billion years they've been around. Pretty amazing. But now we know that we're related to those single-celled beings. They were the progenitors of all the life that came after them. Life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with 10 trillion cells, 10 to 100 trillion cells, that's you and me, all working together to maintain this organism. And we have all been shaped by natural processes, you know. For about a billion years of life on Earth, there were no legs or feet because there was no land to walk on. And then over the eons, continents bumped into each other, and ice ages came and went, and uh, volcanoes erupted. And every, th every time something like that happened, life would be forced to find a new way to live and grow new plumages and new uh, ways of sensing and new appendages. It's like nature is like an artist, you know, keeps coaxing new life forms out of, out of this phenomena of life on earth. Quite, quite astounding, really. And this shape that we are in now is the result of all of the triumphs and failures of all the life that came before us. This long process that we inherit. We inherit all that karma, if you will. Look at your hand for a moment. This hand was once the beginning stub of a fin. And once these fingers were webbed like a frog's. And not just in our past lives as other forms of life, but in our mother's womb as we cycled through the DNA of fish and amphibian, we had stubs of fins webbed 
hands and feet. Take your wrists and move them like that, and your shoulders. You can almost move, move the wrists and shoulders 360 degrees. Other mammals can't do that. The reason we can do that, uh, primates can do that, because for millions of years, we were swinging through the trees. The Buddha, I, the Buddha had some sense of this process. In his time, he may have put it in a different language, and his understanding may have been of a different sense, of a different sort. But he said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. Past causes and conditions. Some sense there that this is not mine. This is, it's evolution's body. It's a loner. Coming to our senses is really, uh, the current inquiring mind, by the way, is about the six senses. Senses are, are really a cause for awe and wonder right here. Take the sense of hearing, for instance. First of all, there is no sound outside of your head. The world is completely silent. All sound is created inside of your head. Nature has devised this amazing Rube Goldberg-like sound system in order for you to read the environment, to read disturbances of the air by giving you sound inside of your head. So right now I'm flapping my lips and, you know, which is a whole other story about, uh, of amazement because I don't have to direct my tongue and lips to create all these different sounds. It, is so, uh, it has been so developed in us uh, humans that I don't have to consciously think about it. It's just happening, and I'm babbling. But so I'm flapping my lips, creating mo creating waves in the in the air that are then hitting the drums of your ear, which is then vibrating three little bones, which is then wiggling a little pool of liquid, which is then vibrating three little hairs, some little hairs that then <laughs> tickle some nerves that send electrical signals to the auditory center of the brain where sound is created. And not only is sound created, but whatever is disturbing the air, be it horns honking or crows cawing or, or me talking, your brain creates the sound, identifies the source, and even makes meaning out of it. And you hardly have to lift a finger. It's truly uh, quite, quite amazing. So the next time you hear 
some music. Remember that it's you are the band. You are the orchestra, the singer. You don't have to, you know, take music lessons or anything. It's already happening. Okay, now, look around you right now. What you see is a masterful work of three-dimensional art, continually changing three-dimensional art, created by the greatest painter that ever lived, your eyes and brain. Because what you are seeing right now is not the original. What you're seeing right now is a repainting of the light that is now hitting your eyes, repainting by your brain. All that's happening now is that these streams of photons are bouncing onto the screen of your retina. Millions of receptor cells there picking up, some pick up motion, some pick up color, some pick up depth, some pick up faces only. Just an amazing uh, specialized uh, array of receptor cells. They turn these beams of photons into electrical signals. Again, it's not like the, the light, this picture goes back into your brain. It's just Electrical signals go, goes back to the visual cortex, which then registers all, the, all these uh, messages, sends them out to many different regions of the brain, like a conference call, decides what it's important for you to see and know at this moment, and then paints the picture for you and gives you moment-to-moment -moment snapshot. It's, uh, it's, it's really quite easy and uh, quite remarkable. Just a constant painting going on inside your head. Uh, if you look, look down at the floor, look at your lap for a moment, and then look back up here, you didn't have to refocus. You didn't have to adjust your eyes for depth or uh, distance or light. Or It's an instamatic for dummies, you know. It's just the most <laughs> a, a phenomenal... A piece of equipment that we have been given. Uh, it's said that the focusing muscles in the eyes move many thousands of times in a day, the equivalent of, uh, of walking several, the energy equivalent of walking several miles. The scientists, the biologists are pretty astounded. I don't know, um, maybe there's, there's a few of you here you can make yourself known when at the end. We can talk maybe about this, but the eye is, uh, one biologist put it this way, the eye is just a small piece of flesh built of sugars, fats, water, and a little protein. Yet it has millions of precisely calibrated moving parts. In the embryo, groups of cells arrange themselves to create eyes, the optic nerve, which has a millions of fibers, the visual cortex of the brain, as if they had met and agreed in advance on the design and construction of the most sophisticated sensing device imaginable. <coughs> Even Charles Darwin wrote, quote, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by small increments through natural selection is, I confess, absurd in the highest degree. So, it's truly your senses that are creating this light and sound show. Alfred North Whitehead wrote, 
The various qualities of the world are purely the creation of the mind. Nature always gets the credit. The rose for its scent, and the nightingale for its song, and the sun for its radiance. But these experiences are our creation. The poets are mistaken. They should address their lyrics to themselves. Walt Whitman says, Oh, to have my life henceforth my poem of joy. Just a little reflection. It's the mystery, the complexity, the wonder of who we are as human beings. It's revolutionary to, to regard this wonder and to arouse this wonder because then to be satisfied and to be fulfilled and to be delighted, we won't need to consume so much in the marketplace and, and look for our satisfaction out there. It's right here. A few more. The brain. Well, need I go say anything more? The, the so-called three-pound universe uh, processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second and sorts all that out and decides what it is you need to know at the second and lets you know. I mean, there are the, the no, possible number of synaptical connections exceeds the number of atoms in the known universe. Uh, and if you could look inside your head right now, it would rival, you know, the Las Vegas Strip and just firing, you know, all these synapses firing, all this activity going on. Can you sense it, the buzzing of brains? Meanwhile, uh, the neuroscientists are discovering that there's, there, there's nobody up there directing this. That, in fact, the brain is a self-organizing system. And uh, it all goes on uh, on a, what, what they call a subpersonal level, what the neuroscientists call a subpersonal level. In Time Magazine 1995, they ran a cover story uh, summarizing the latest brain research, uh, the story was called In Search of the Mind. And I'm sure a lot of people were surprised to discover that it was missing and even more disturbed to discover that the scientists can't find it. This was the conclusion of the Time Magazine article, the last two sentences. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. That was Time magazine. Now, why wasn't there a nationwide panic with people... <laughs> leaping out of buildings and saying, my God, the self does not exist. Of course, as you know, the Buddhists have been talking about that for, for centuries, and the Hindus as well. Uh, it all sort of goes on with, within you and without you, as George Harrison put it. Uh, and then, of course, there's the mystery of awareness itself. This ability to know this thing that knows, 
Nobody can find out where it is, what it's made of. It doesn't seem to have any substance to it. This consciousness, this mystery. The mystics are awed by it. The Tibetans sing praises to it as if it were a deity, the ground of being. Uh, the scientists are at a loss as to what it is or where it is or how it works. And that's really the central mystery. The central mystery, that and life itself. Life itself. The mystery is always there. No matter how much the scientists will discover, the mystery, I think, will always be there. But at least now we have the molecule. We have the DNA, which is the core or the, the, the key substance, at least, that exists in all of life. Uh, deoxyribonucleic acid, this miraculous molecule of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, that molecule will contribute to the growth of a human being or a giant sequoia or an ant or a rose. All of life has the same molecule at its base. And uh, we now know, I mean, that the spiritual message of that is that we are all related. We are related to all that lives and that we have grown up out of all that lives. We have emerged out of the life of Gaia, this planet. You know that probably that we share over 98% of our DNA with the great apes. 99.99% of your DNA is exactly the same as the DNA of the person sitting next to you. You know, our IQs and our personalities and our little quirks, which seem so great, are actually just a little thin coat of paint over this basic human design. Most of our DNA, most of the information for building and creating us is information for building and creating a basic human. Uh, we share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice, nearly 70% with worms, and nearly 50% with yeast. <laughs> ah, what a shock! We're related to the slime in some way? And I ask, if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Who gets a soul, you know? The kangaroos? The, the bacteria? By the way, I, I have a new acronym for DNA. Deoxyribonucleic acid is much too cold and clinical <laughs> to refer to this substance that grows all of life. So from now on, when you hear or read those letters, DNA, think divine natural abundance. <laughs> anyway, one last wow before I close. The wow is in the DNA and it is in our cells, these uh, 10 to 100 trillion cells. Each of your cells is trillionths of a fraction of a trillionths the size of a pinhead, just minuscule little things. Inside of each of your cells is a drop of seawater, basically. And floating inside 
of those drops of seawater is two yards of DNA. Now DNA, the, the reason you can get two yards of DNA into that tiny, tiny little cell is because it's only about two molecules wide. It's very, very thin and it wraps all millions of times around itself. So inside of each of your trillions of cells is two yards of DNA. So if your DNA were stretched end to end, it would go around the planet several million times. Do the math. Trillions of cells, two <laughs> yards. And all of that is the information of all of life. I mean, inside of you is this library of all of the lessons that life has accumulated in its long history, three and a half billion year history on this planet. Really, uh, cause for wonder, cause for mystery, cause for delight. E.O. Wilson says, the chances of producing a human being through random chance in the universe is like a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and producing a 747. <laughs> Precious human existence, as the Buddha said. Precious human life. And it's this little exercise, you know, be here, wow. It's very simple, you can, and you can make up your own, or you can, you can just sit in meditation. As you sit in meditation, bring beginner's mind and just bring your attention inward as if you were seeing it and experiencing it for the first time. Or even use a, a kind of koan. What is this? What is this breath and this sentience and this awareness? And just to ask yourself that with a beginner's mind as you experience it, it becomes a part of the mystery. Let me read you a little poem here to close, and then if do we have any time for any questions? Maybe one question. Maybe you can get together and prepare it. <laughs> or one comment. <laughs> this is Mary Oliver. It is the nature of stone to be satisfied. It is the nature of water to want to be somewhere else. Everywhere we look, the sweet guttural swill of the water tumbling. Everywhere we look, the stone basking in the sun or offering itself to the golden lichen. It is our nature not only to see that the world is beautiful, but to stand in the dark under the stars or at noon in the rainfall of light, frenzied, wringing our hands, half mad, crying over and over, what does it mean that the world is beautiful? What does it mean? The child asks this, and the de determined laboring adult asks this. The carpenter, the scholar, the fisherman, the teacher, the rich and the poor, 
The old and the very old, not yet having figured it out, ask this, standing beside the golden-coated field rock or the tumbling water or under the stars. What does it mean? What does it mean? If any of you come up with an answer, please let me know. <laughs> Maybe the answer is to live the mystery. Live the mystery fully as mystery. And that way it is, you live it with a kind of innocence and openness that, uh, that makes it all worthwhile. So, yes. You know, I don't have any idea about that. That's part of the mystery to me, is, is where we came from, where we're going. It's part of the whole package of mystery. And uh, I don't necessarily believe that uh, we come back. As that as an uh, as a being that has anything to do with the being that we were. Well, that's that's disputable. It's very disputable. If you uh, want a good one one reading on it that really doubts it, uh, Stephen Batchelor's book, uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, is a good book. Uh, it's very puzzling because. Uh, the Buddha denies the Hindu belief in atta, or soul, soul or self, individual soul, which the Hindus always talked about uh, as being right here, and once you uh, could unite your soul with Brahma, you would be released from rebirth. The Buddha, Buddha said there is no soul here, no anatta. There, there's anatta, no soul, no self, no life. What gets reborn? There's nothing here of I or mine. I mean, you know, there are people who, there, there's also, this, this, this topic can go on forever, you know. This is, this is fun to talk about, you know, over a glass of wine and... Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, it's a mystery. One more, yeah. Found it interesting, and I, I'm finding that I can recontextualize myself as a feedlot for bacteria. <laughs> and uh, it's actually not a bad feeling. And, and my question is: Is is it arrogant now? Now that I am 
sort of a sangha of bacteria. <laughs> is, it, is it arrogant to think that when I meditate, that my whole sangha meditates with me? <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that? He, he's wondering if when he meditates, his whole sangha of bacteria is meditating with him. I think uh, that's delightful to think you may be uh, getting them enlightened. It's a real... Us, <laughs> Us yes. You, you, you can really think of that as being a real bodhisattva offering yourself. <laughs> You're not only offering yourself to eat, for them to eat, but... They're keeping me alive, too. Yes, that's true. That's beautiful. I like that. Uh, okay. Uh, it's always a delight to be here. Thank you for coming, and be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.